And g'day on Fuzzy Logic. Our subject today is peak oil and the Jesus Bolt. Ruminations. Life with science overtones. Written and presented by Rod Taylor. G'day and today we'll ruminate on the Jesus Bolt. There's nothing like a good infinity. It's a fun concept, quite divine to imagine something going on forever. Or fun for mathematicians and fun for cosmologists, but these things have no place in financial systems. Dear Mr. Taylor, our records indicate that you have infinite bank balance. Woohoo! Dear Mr. Taylor, our records indicate that your interest payments total infinite dollars. Clearly, you should never see infinity on a financial statement, ledger, or asset register of any kind. It's mad, yet the massed armies of accountants, financial analysts, industrialists, and politicians behave as if this were the case. Mad indeed, because the driving assumption in our economy is that the planet resources are infinite, and we're never going to run out of iron, nickel, water, or oil, when this is demonstrably not true. And mad because every ounce of energy is directed to consuming these as fast as possible. And yet, we've come to accept the mantra that endless economic growth is a reasonable and a desirable goal. We wouldn't trust a bank manager who advises us to live off our savings, but collectively, this is what we're doing. We treat an asset such as iron ore reserves as if it were an income, and living off of savings is not the same as living off salary. A downturn in GDP brings on sad faces and recriminations. And if the rate of mining slows, it's gloomy chops all round. Well, what happens when a resource runs out? No problem. Economists call up the law of substitution, which says that when one thing becomes short, market forces kick in and it will be replaced by an equivalent. So if supply of one metal runs short, we simply switch to another. And it's argued technology will always find ways of extracting more of a resource. Indeed, both things have already happened with oil. Really? Well, yes, but I'm not sure how much it will help us. Let's see. Oil is the biggie. Oil is the Jesus bolt of our civilization. The Jesus what? Well, imagine this. You're hang gliding, swishing divinely through the sky, across the grass, over hills. And then you look up, and with that shuddering realization, you see the unwinding bolt. And that's the bolt that holds the whole plot together. Jesus. Uh, what happens then? We fall out of the sky. Wherever you are, look around and the chances are that every manufactured product you can see contains an oil product or was extracted using energy based on oil. And right now I'm typing on a computer with plastic keys, an oil product. The dyes, the inks, the other colorings, oil derived. The sorbolene moisturizer on my skin from oil. Breakfast sealed with crops critically dependent on large amounts of oil, and so on. Oil is right at the foundation of our civilization, and it truly fits the description of a Jesus bolt. It's not commonly known, but the world once did nearly run out of oil. Indeed, nowadays it seems almost comic to imagine the world ran on oil. That is, oil from whales. 
Energy, lights in the home and essential products were obtained by hunting down whales. And in 1853, 8,000 whales were slaughtered for their oil and sundry other parts used for corsets, perfumes, lubricants and candles. And as whale numbers depleted in one area, we needed bigger and better ships to travel to more distant waters. In 1946, there were 900 ships around the globe, and in Australia, the last whaling station in Albany closed in 1978. Interestingly, this was only partly due to environmental concerns. In fact, it was mostly because the whales were becoming scarce and the venture uneconomic. It was lucky then that humanity discovered that mineral oil was an extremely good substitute. Its use dates back to the 9th century when Persian scholar Razi distilled kerosene. In 1853, Samuel Keir began selling kerosene to local miners distilled from crude oil using a process he invented. This and the discovery of vast reserves were the precursors of the modern oil era. Cheap, readily available and just waiting to be pumped out and refined. And right now it looks like we've hit peak oil. That's the point at which it becomes difficult to increase production and demand starts outstrip supply. And now we're in a similar situation to the one faced by the whalers with their long distance ships. We must work ever harder as the easy oil is mostly gone. I take for example the deep water horizon. It was 400 kilometres offshore with a rig in 1,200 metres of water and drilling up to 9 kilometres into the seabed. It wouldn't be there if oil was easy to get. The days when cheap oil could be pumped from the surface are gone. The Jesus bolt is unwinding. So why do we hear not much about it? Surely in this situation it should be all hands to the pump. In the US, that's what the Tea Party wants. That is, they want to drill, baby, drill. Well, we might be able to drill out a little longer, but there's no way around it. Oil is a finite resource, and one day it will be gone. And what then? And what are the new oil substitutes? We're sure we're running out of mineral oil, so let's just use ethanol or hydrogen or oil sands instead. In looking for a good alternative, we have to think about the amount of energy returned for the amount we put in. The equation is called the energy return on investment. The problem with oil from biofuels is the amount of energy you need to grow, transport and process the raw materials. Extracting ethanol from the mush brewed in vats saps energy. And the entire cycle might actually cost more energy than it produces. I can and I have made ethanol at home. Tastes good, but it's a long way from something I can run my car on. And then it's one thing to brew at a home or a lab and another thing to scale up to commercial production. There have been many attempts so far, but we haven't yet found a process that can compete with oil. The reason conventional oil is so good in this sense is because nature has done the work for us. It's accumulated vast amounts of organic matter and stewed it in natural reservoirs. To get it out of a good reserve, we just poke a tube in and out it squirts. We run it through a refinery and extract petrol and a huge range of useful stuff. Large areas of oil sands in Alaska and shale oil deposits elsewhere face similar challenges. It takes a lot more energy to get a usable product out than conventional oil. In places like Alberta, bitumen sands are near the surface across wide tracks 
and diggers pile it into huge trucks which then take it in to the nearby refinery. Imagine great dollops of this sticky, gooey stuff. To get the oil out, they have to separate it, and this means large vats pumped through with steam. And you can see where the energy is going in this process. The diggers and the trucks all consume energy. The refining and the plumbing and the other machinery all also use lots of energy, and generating all that steam, yet more energy. And all this expenditure of energy is required just to get some energy out. And then, of course, there's the environmental damage stripping all that land. So that's a gloomy story, but surely, surely we humans are endlessly inventive and there will be a solution. Well, no doubt, yes, but I don't know exactly what that is, and there are plenty of clever people working on it. But what amazes me is a lack of action. This is important enough to warrant a Manhattan-scale project, but what do we actually see? Diddly squat. So if that was energy from oil, what about energy in your body? Next week in Ruminations, we flex our muscles. Catch you later. You've been listening to Ruminations, written and presented by Rod Taylor. Produced by Deborah Hawke and David Jenkins. was uh, Ruminations here on Fuzzy Logic. All right, uh, Stuart, you've written this uh, comic novel, and it's called Peak Oil, mm-hmm. and we're going to give a plug to the uh, web address. It's peakoil dot, uh, peakoilcomic.com. Who was King Hubbard? King Hubbard was an American geologist who was born 112 years ago, and uh, he was one of the most highly educated geologists of the last century, and he did many things throughout his career, but the thing that we most remember him for is the discovery of the peak oil concept. So he he was working for Shell Petroleum in a real plum job, sort of the equivalent of one of those free-thinking laboratories like they used to have at General Electric and things like that, where people would just have the freedom to pursue whatever interested them. And it happened that in in 1956, King Hubbard was uh, interested in working out how many um, barrels of oil the USA had left to drill. And he he wanted to extrapolate how that would uh, actually uh, manifest itself in a year-to-year basis. And uh, they didn't want to hear what he had to say. Well, there were certain people within Shell that didn't want to hear what he had to say. So, yeah, um, so... It's a, he, but he got a mixed reaction, right? So, um, like, it's it's like all of us when we get bad news. Do you really yeah. want to hear the story? And well, he, he was living in an era where people just assume it, it was during a boom era of the U.S. petroleum industry, and people just assumed that oil would continue to come for it would keep, continue to rise and rise in production for generations to come and that um, oil depletion would be an issue for grandchildren to worry about. But he, he did some solid analysis. He looked at the, the really well-surveyed geological research, uh, reserves of the USA and said, OK, we're in 1956 at the moment, but 15 years from now, in 1970, we're actually going to be in decline. We're going to be at the peak of oil production, and from that point every year we're going to be in decline. And... That was something that not everyone wanted to hear, as you mentioned. There were vested interests who liked the idea of a continuing boom for, for years and years. 
So Stuart, what were his key findings that um, threatened uh, Shell so much? Yeah, well, um, the, the thing was Hubbard wasn't actually... He wasn't quoting any numbers that were different to the the well-established oil reserves that other people had uh, already discovered, but he, he kind of just looked at the implications of that. He realised that one day... He realised that oil started at zero before we started drilling oil the annual rate of production was zero and he realised that at some stage we're going to have to go back down to zero as well. So he just, he, he looked at a tra- trajectory that um, oil production could take and he, he said, look, there's not much we can really do. Look, many people assume we can just keep on going up and up and up forever and then the industry will just shut down overnight. But he... So his critical findings were perhaps that there was an absolute point for reserves, that it wasn't this infinitum that perhaps was perceived previously. Yeah, so th- th- there were little things you could do to, to influence the date, but not mm. really. There was It was going to fall within a very um, narrow window, I think he said between 1965 and 1971 or something like that. And he was referring there to US peak oil, wasn't yeah. it? Right? so he realised that the USA's oil production is merely the sum of all the individual uh, oil fields of America and all of these oil fields follow this trajectory of starting out slowly, coming to a peak and then dropping off. So he realised, well, if the country is nothing more than the sum of all the individual oil fields, surely um, it's going to follow the same bell-shaped trajectory where there's going to be a date where we're at the maximum production and then from that date we um, drop there's, there's something really psychological about this, though, isn't there? Because you're on this curve and it's going up and up, up and we're having a whoopee time, man. It's just <laughs> going swimmingly. <laughs> and as you get to the top, well, you are at the top, aren't you? And then yeah. it's kind of a, a psychological flip to say, we're going down the far side. <laughs> yeah. And so do you think that's part of the way that we, we have trouble grappling with this? Yeah, well, uh, everything about our economy, about our culture is dependent on this idea that, you know, next year I'll be earning more money than I was this year because inflation's going up. I want to live in a slightly bigger, you know, when I move from my current house to my next house, that one needs to be slightly bigger. I want to be going to a holiday destination, which is slightly further away. We're in this growth culture. One of the things I discovered when I was learning about King Hubbard, the geologist, is he wasn't purely talking about geology he had many of these insights into our mindset and into our uh, economy and uh, the way it's currently geared we we, we sort of have no neutral position of our economy Um, we're either in this growth phase that we hope things will be in or we're going into recession there's um, the very same forces that keep our economy growing and the money supply growing if the growth stops it actually it's like an accordion and it starts to start shrinking in Oh, that's that's brilliant, Stuart. Um, so a steady state economy is something... I find this really strange because the economy, technology, these are entirely human creations, mm. and yet we don't control them, do mm. we? No. <laughs> we speculate. We, 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 we boom and bust, like you mm. say. We speculate, we have happy times, and, and then we just suddenly dip into the, the, the bad times. So let's go back to his predictions, right? And, yep. and how have they been borne out by reality? Well, he was actually very accurate about what happened in the USA. And the reason for that is that he had the luxury of the USA being very well mapped geolo- uh, geolo- geologically before he came up with his predictions. So that they'd already done a lot of the legwork into working out quite... Um, 
where you know how many barrels of oil the USA had to have. Um, so he was he was very accurate in saying that the USA was going to peak in 1971. That's what happened. Uh, the US has actually peaked and, and declined ever since then in terms of conventional oil anyway, petroleum. Ah, uh, yes. Well, now, listeners who, who watch the oil price, weird people who <laughs> do things like watch oil price will see that it's gone from $100 plus per barrel down to 50 or... In the 50s, yeah. There, thereabouts. Uh, now, that's not to do with the decline of the pure mineral oil reserves, but unconventional oil and uh, other types of oil so yeah and it's given us perhaps a false sense that you know everything is going along swimmingly yeah there's plenty there you know and uh, but now what's happening on the global scale so that was the US yeah where where are we now trucking globally yeah so um before I was talking about King Hubbard's predictions for America, where he said the USA is going to peak in 1970, and that is what happened every, from every year after 1970, well, uh, until the very near future, uh, the USA followed this bell curve of declining oil production, um, and that's something that has uh, happened fairly closely on a global scale as well. Um, so uh, the, U- the world's conventional oil production peaked in, I think it was Thanksgiving 2005, um, and it has been in decline every year since 2005, but uh, that's only for conventional oil. So that's the oil that you just drill out of the ground and it comes as a ready, ready-to-use product, so Is to speak. crude oil? Crude oil, yeah. Petroleum is another word for it as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but total oil liquids has continued to grow. And that's because if, if you imagine a bell curve with a little bit of a veranda growing off of it, that's um, the unconventional oil that we mentioned before. And I guess in a way, the unconventional oil is, uh, it, it doesn't disprove the peak oil theory because it is, that's sort of the behavior that you'd expect us to, to get into once we've um, finished with the easy to access stuff we would be getting into these sort of um oils like you mentioned in your uh, your opening comments um the oil that you don't just drill out of the ground as a ready to use product it's something that you actually need to spend more energy to to achieve and to refine yeah and uh, I, I have interviewed on uh, fuzzy logic some time ago i might replay this interview soon at a uh, u.s oil expert and he talks about what he calls peak oil light, and uh, in which there's a bunch of peak, uh, f- uh, multiple peaks. You know, the, the the peak oscillates a bit, and I think it's because there's various knocks to the economy, and the technical term is the the Hilbert curve or something like that from memory. But uh, you you get an oil shock, and then you the you know the economy slows down, like you're saying, mm. uh, Stuart. Uh, the uh, yeah anyway so it upsets the economy it upsets our production I think we might tra- uh, break to a little tracky from the doors and this CD was made without any oil products at all uh, <laughs> entirely recycled organic material here on Fuzzy Logic and we're talking to Stuart McMillan on the subject of peak oil Oh, and a bit of The Doors there, classic, classic rock. And, of course, uh, Jim Morrison there lived to age of 27, died prematurely, which is a great loss. 
And of course, uh, Jimi Hendrix didn't even last uh, 27 seconds on our CD a moment ago, so <laughs> <laughs> he, he did better. Uh, our guest today is Stuart McMillan. Make sure you check out his comics at peakoilcomic.com. And it's a ripping yarn, actually. I think mm. I might get you, Stuart, to tell me about why you wrote a graphic novel. What was it that inspired you uh, down this path? Mm. Well, I've been a cartoonist since roughly... Well, it depends where you draw the line to where I started, but roughly 2009 I started drawing these comics, which are sort of me trying to communicate environmental issues to people. Um, and I've, I've refined it over the years, and I, I tend to use these characters like um, these real-life scientists like King Hubbard, who's the peak oil discoverer, to uh, help people to understand these sorts of issues. Um, and something about the graphic novel, though, you, you've latched onto that. Obviously, you have an artistic ability, but there's something about communicating through a graphic novel that, that appeals to you, and, and I think you would say appeals to the reader? Yeah, right? so I, I, I try and... It, it's a different way of, of trying to communicate things to people, and um, I guess th th there's something very um, involving about reading it uh, as a comic and seeing the panel-by-panel -panel artwork. Well, I've, I've got to say this. Um, in, in your current book about uh, King Hubbard, there's some fantastic panels you've got, and it's a roller coaster. Yeah, the, uh, so for the readers who haven't seen the comic yet, I'm explaining the concept of peak oil with King Hubbard as sort of a, an engineer who's trying to build a roller coaster with a limited number of trusses to, to sort of sit underneath the roller coaster slope. So that's, that's something that King Hubbard himself that wasn't an analogy that King Hubbard himself used to explain peak oil, but I guess I, I sort of see myself as a science communicator, so I, for that little thing I was putting words in his mouth to... <laughs> but, but it's a great way of conveying the concept mm. because we all know what uh, roller coasters mm. do, right? They go up, mm. they go they down. Have, they have to come down at some stage. It was a great visual analogy, I mm. thought, and um, it was sort of, yeah emotive that ran through the novel which I thought worked really well. Mm. And it has an emotional content yeah. because it's exhilarating, you know, you're suddenly flying up and then, whoa, you're going around the corner and then you're going down the far side mm. but uh, and, and th that doesn't trivialise it though, does it? Because this is actually a, a fairly serious thing. Is, is that something that's really motivated you as well, that you feel a deep personal concern about this subject yeah so i guess it, it is a little hard for the listeners out there who haven't seen my artwork but um when i say comics they're not uh in the the cutesy sort of style that you might imagine they're actually um they're drawn out to be somewhat realistic like the characters for example look somewhat realistic and i'm trying to um, th this is a 120-page comic that'll take people 20 minutes to read, but I hope that it's it's sort of a 20-minute primer into the, the concept of peak oil that um, mm. will take someone from zero understanding to a fairly decent understanding within 20 minutes. And, and you're telling it through, through the vehicle of a person's personal story. Yeah. And now you've got some other characters that you're working on as well, uh, including Buckminster Fuller, which I think most of us will know Buckminster Fuller, Bucky Balls. Yeah. And, geodesic domes and such like? Yeah, so um, I, I, I try and tell my stories through a, a person, so I sort of have a character in my comic who is a, a real-life person who I've researched and... It's the hero archetype, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I, well, early on when I started drawing comics, it was very much me, the creator, 
inserting myself into the story and trying to tell people what to think essentially but I've, I've i've seen the benefit in sort of sitting back a little bit and um letting the characters what uh, life story speak for itself yes and my my daughter who's a fantasy novelist uh, she definitely would say something similar so on that vein then tell us about buckminster fuller apart from making funky uh, geometric shapes how, he, how does he fit into the oil story well he did a lot of things throughout his career and indeed i'd like to actually return to bucky fuller again and again and to do a lot of different comics about many of his discoveries. But um, in my book, which is going to be called Thermoeconomics, it's, it's about the intersection of economics and our current growth economy and how they actually how it interacts with the physical world. So the way that Buckminster Fuller fits into the book is that I'm going to I'm going to take people I'm going to explain the concept of peak oil and energy and fossil fuels to people through this King Hubbard comic mm -hmm. and then I'll get into Buckminster Fuller to again talk about energy but I'll be using Buckminster Fuller to talk about the number of energy slaves that we have working for us oh what's an energy slave yeah uh, so we're currently sitting in a radio studio and there are light bulbs um, shining down on us in the room here and I, I'm sure most of the listeners out there would be in a room with a light bulb or a computer monitor on at the moment or in, or in a car in a car thing. yep or on the podcast with iTunes and so on that's uh, right fuzzy logic on <laughs> two double x <laughs> oh, that's a great plug yes Go on. Anyway, keep going. Energy yep. slave. So uh, these lights that are shining on us in the studio at the moment, they actually have a human equivalent. So we can imagine, we can calculate how many watts these light bulbs are drawing the current from the, the electricity supply, and we can imagine a particular person on a treadmill over in the corner of the room running along and um, generating the energy that we need. And, of course, there are many energy slaves that we use all throughout our day. Um, you know, if someone is in the car, like you say, at the moment, listening to this show, um, there's roughly 900 energy slaves behind the car at the moment pushing the car along. Because if you think about if your car breaks down at the moment, how much energy it actually takes to, to, to keep it going, get that huge lump of metal rolling along. And not only rolling along, but rolling along at 60 k's an hour is quite an effort. So, so he's talking about the role of energy and how energy uh, literally powers everything. Is that sort of what yeah. we're getting at? So you've probably heard the term horsepower, which is um, you, where you can rate energy in, where you can rate engines in how many horses, imaginary horses it would take to do the same amount of effort. Mm -hmm. But he thought, well, horses are getting a little bit abstract in this era where we're not really grown up with farm animals and horses as a day-to-day -day occurrence he mm -hmm. thought mm -hmm. we we can still um, imagine how much time it would take a person on a stationary bike or on a treadmill or maybe shoveling soil that sort of thing we can think about the human equivalent of uh, all of now that's interesting because for our um, ask fuzzy column here's another plug that appears each week in fairfax media i got to read a question she wanted to know could they harness energy out of the gyms? You know, all these people in the gym and they're on their treadmills and they're working away. Can't we just connect them up to generators mm. and power the gym? Well, I, I did a bit of research into that and the answer is, well, you could. You might power a flickering little bulb in the corner, but that's about it. Mm. And I think it's surprising how much energy you need to, to keep things going. Is mm. yeah, And that's the miracle of fossil fuels. We can just dig up this ancient sunlight, this uh, 
energy hit the earth 200 million years ago it hit a leaf of a plant and went into the body of a tree and then the tree was buried underground and here it is this very condensed form of energy that we can now dig up oh let's have a look at some of the other characters you've got on your to-do list oh, i don't know if i can pronounce this bloke's name <laughs> properly simon cousinets cousinets yep so i've, I've uh, I've deliberately chosen two other guys who are a little bit less well known. So I've chosen two economists. And Herman Daly is Herman the other, Daly. other one. Yep. yep. So Simon Kuznets is uh, actually the guy who created GDP, gross domestic product, which is the way that we measure our economy at the moment. And of course, we're, as you mentioned earlier on in the in the the radio show, we uh, we mention we measure the our economy in numbers and GDP, you know, if GDP rises, that's a good thing, right? Oh, can we just have some sacred music, please, while we say the words GDP? Because we, you know, we, uh, we should genuflect, we should bow down with a suitable um, humility before GDP. Mm. It's a very, yeah. And what, what, so what, what, what did he have to say about GDP? Well, there was this recurring thing with everything that Simon Cousins did as an economist where he would... He would put a, an economic model out there, or he would um, he would make develop an economic indicator like GDP, and he'd say, "Look, it's useful for this purpose, but you wouldn't want to get carried away with it. You wouldn't want to make this the prime in, uh, measure of well-being." Mm. And so this happened again and again throughout his career, where he would develop something with these utter cautions about how things could go really wrong if we overly fixated on gross domestic product as our measure of well-being and what has happened is we've just ignored all of his warnings and we are fixated on gdp gdp can rise you know if i get a dump truck full of sulfuric acid and i drive down to lake belly griffin today and dump sulfuric acid in the lake that will be great for GDP because there'll be all sorts of lawyers and inspectors that'll need to come along and investigate the situation. We'll have to pay them money. We'll have to pay for the cleanup of the lake. We'll have to do all sorts of extra economic activity that we wouldn't otherwise have done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, human we, development lost. indicators are, what, fairly <laughs> secondary to GDP, I hmm. guess. it's um, How do you shift that? mentality in a in a comic book or not shift it but bring to light um that there is an overemphasis on gdp mm. well the things that i'm going to bring up in my comic which i've written but not yet actually drawn um these are not th there are well-known flaws in gdp that have been known for decades and decades and yet we still have these very uh influential economists and you know people in treasury politicians or well, i think politicians are the prime Mm. culprit here where they they uh, you know our own treasurer for example is just uh, fixated on you know we need to grow the economy before we can start um caring about you know paying elderly citizens more pension money or uh, yeah, you know it's, putting it's, in more uh, renewable energy generators and it's just it's, it's very back to front. It's it's lunacy. It's lunacy, isn't it? Because uh, I think the word externalities come into mm. mind here, and that's a, a technical term. Sorry, but <laughs> but that's the things which you get the benefit from, but you don't pay for. Mm -hmm. So if you rip oil out of the ground, uh, that's mine. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that it's a and as I said in the uh, podcast in the audio we played at the front of the show. 
uh, it's spending our bank balance is what that is. It's mm. an asset. It's not an income. Mm. So it's not ongoing money coming in. And then when if I dump the products of that uh, <clears throat> into the lake, we're going to have to edit that out so we remove all the evidence of that uh, little story about sulfuric acid there, <laughs> Stuart. <laughs> uh, uh, it yeah. wasn't me. It wasn't me. <laughs> oh, it was somebody else. Uh, look, I think that's probably a good point at which to break to a track and Stuart, you have chosen this one called Back to the Car. Back to the Car. Back to the Car. Pretty funky stuff. Yeah, by a band called We All Want To, which is a l- even more out there of a band name. Uh, some of the listeners might remember a band from the 1990s called Scream Feeder, and uh, the, the singer from Scream Feeder is in a band now called We All Want To, and they're actually playing a gig in Canberra next Saturday, the 6th of June, for the amazingly low price of $5. So. Oh, yeah, we, we'll give them, happy to give them a plug, and you're listening to Stuart McMillan, peakoil.com, or peakoilcomic.com, here on Fuzzy Logic. Back to the car here on Fuzzy Logic. Yes, some very funky music there from, I think you might know the musician there, Stuart. Uh, and they're coming to Canberra next week, did you say? Yep, the band's called We All Want To, and they're playing at the Phoenix next Saturday, the 6th of June, if you want to get up to something at the start of your long weekend. Uh, get up to some mischief and get out there. and $5. $5, yeah, that's good. Let's plug some local music. So our guest today is Stuart McMillan, and make sure you check out his graphic novels, peakoilcomic.com, and on there you'll find a bunch of other comics that he's done on themes other than Peak Oil, and I've got a pile of them on the desk here, and they're fantastic-looking things. I really want to read them now. Type 3, welcome to Type Three. What's type three, Stuart? Well, uh, it's very much related to this. Um, some of the, the themes that you touched upon at the start of the show about um, just the, the the way that our uh, in human industrial systems. There are actually some parallels that you can draw between the human industrial system and natural ecosystems. So the, the, the comic Type 3 is about what happened at Mount St. Helens in 1980 when the volcano erupted, which ah. is pretty, a pretty famous uh, event. Yeah, yeah. And what happened after the volcano erupted is it was a total scorched earth where there was no living things within many square kilometres of the volcano. So my comic actually tells the story of how gradually um, organisms re- recolonized um the mount st helens area and um so i'm drawing parallels between the way that that developed into a a mature ecosystem and the way that our industrial system is slowly developing into a a mature ecosystem in itself okay now uh, it's a really interesting theme this because this is kind of what we're talking about gdp just before that track that you have this thing that sort of exists out there in the ether, detached from the real world, the economy. Mm-hmm. But the economy sits on the physical world, mm-hmm. and it has to ultimately obey the natural laws. Yes, it is. the economy is a subsystem of the ecology. Mm-hmm. And um, interestingly, the, the fourth person that I'm going to cover for my book, Thermoeconomics, is Herman Daly, the economist, who came up with the concept of steady-state economics. And he is quoted as saying, because if you imagine, you know, when when we first started our human uh, economies in the centuries and millennia that have passed, we were a very small part of the global system. So we might have had, you know, 
Amsterdam, London, Paris, these sort of, you know, these were specs on the globe at the time, but we're, we're rapidly approaching, well, as you know, with climate change, we're, we are at the point where our activities are actually influencing the biosphere and the ecosphere of the planet. So what Herman Daly said with steady-state economics, well, he, he, he acknowledged that our, our current economic systems are based on this idea of perpetual infinite growth, which just doesn't happen well, in a, a natural system. Uh, Richard Heinberg, who we have interviewed on uh, Fuzzy Logic, mm. uh, talks about the hamster. Yeah. And he says, imagine the hamster, right? Now it only weighs a quarter of a kilogram, and let's double its weight, and then let's double its weight, and, uh, and so on. It's a compound growth, and yep. I forget the numbers, but within 10 years, this thing is the size of uh, an elephant, and then it's the size of a shipping tanker. It's just clearly a ludicrous yep. concept. Why do you think it is so hard for economics and um, perhaps environmental issues to um, harmonise? I mean, why is it such a hard concept? Mm. Why do we sort of disconnect, disconnect the two, considering the two are so codependent? Um, why is there such a divide in our, as you said um, before, Rod, it is a psychological kind of fixation that we have on, on the two being so disconnected. Why, why can't we? Well, as I mentioned earlier, we started out where human beings were a very small part of planet Earth. We had a very small impact. There were little, little towns, Amsterdam, London, Paris, whatever. We were very small. And whenever we would um, have an impact on the planet, the, the ecosystem would sort of regrow itself somewhere else. So there, there were, we would constantly be fighting these forces of, you know, forests regrowing if we weren't careful enough to keep them ploughed and weed-free. But we, as, our, as our, our sheer numbers have grown and as the, the resources at our fingertips through fossil fuels have grown, we are winning the battle against the wild ecosystem we are our, our scale trampling uh, it of, of effect yeah and um i probably shouldn't reveal at this point but uh, i'm just scripting uh, recording something for the abc science show tomorrow uh, to go live in august uh, as part of our panel uh, in august on the 23rd of august can science save humanity and i'm going to be giving plenty more plugs for that on fuzzy logic over coming weeks but the th part of the theme of what I'm going to talk about is there's a disconnect and there's a sort of an abstraction, right? So if I were to go over to you, Becca, and stick a pin in your arm, right, you would feel that directly. That mm. would be a first-person mm. experience of that. Now, if I were to, to stick the pin in Stuart here from peakoilcomic.com <laughs> and you were to observe him, that would be his second displacement and you would go, yeah, that's poor Stuart, he's got some pain. Now, if I went out to the street uh, on the other end of camera, did the same thing and then you heard it fourth hand, you would kind of go, well, yeah, that's not too good. Some Rod's gone mad with a pin, mm. but uh, you're abstracted. It's not a direct experience. It's for not that a direct person. experience. Yep. And interest right. dissipates if it's not a direct experience. That's mm. it. Yes, you got it exactly. So now, when I was doing the uh, introduction for today with uh, Bruce before we went live, uh, I was talking about where does your breakfast come from, and so where did your breakfast come from? Well, my bowl of cereal and my handful of sultanas and my milk well uh, the cereal came out of a box didn't it right and where did it come from before that uh, well it came from 
a farmer grew it somewhere and then it went to a factory somewhere and then up in my bowl mm. so i'm disconnected from the origin of things that i do and i don't see the result so when i drove my car in oh whoops <laughs> <laughs> how I dare you ride. well I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep, and, and so my impact on global warming mm. is real, but I don't feel but it. It's a, it's a little fractions, and it, it's not uh, it's not pushing the pencil off the edge of the desk and seeing it mm. drop to the floor. It's just a very small little movement, which is mm. yes, it's a, it's an increment, a tiny tiny. But I don't feel the temperature mm. going up just because I drove in. Mm. Mm. And by the way, I, I drive a, uh, a small capacity European uh, diesel, which will run for a week on a good flatulence. <laughs> but this is probably a good segue into a talk that you and I went to, Stuart, uh, mm. a week ago with John Blackburn, who is on the board or is engaged by the NRMA, mm. uh, Order of Australia, a former Depu Air Vice yeah, Marshal. The former Deputy Chief of the Air Force, who's uh, now uh, consulted by NRMA to understand Australia's petroleum and fossil fuel uh, dependency and uh, vulnerabilities. Right, so Stuart, what, what did you take away? And tell the listener what, what he told us. Yeah, well, I, what I was struck with when I saw John's talk was just how vulnerable Australia is geographically with the fact that we're sort of nestled away down in the bottom corner of the world compared to the main economic hubs up the top of the globe. Um the fact that we are not obeying our international obligations. I think it's the International Energy Agency, is it? The IEA, yep, yep, who yep, yep. mandates that all oil uh, producing, or sorry, all, all oil importing countries of a certain... Well, let's, let's talk about Australia's fuel reserves. Mm. Well, they, they say you should have 90 days worth of oil um, just so in case there is some sort of supply disruption. Right. Okay, so you've already said geographically we are vulnerable. Mm. So they look at the shipping line and he put up a map and it shows two shipping lines through the Indonesian straits around Malaysia and up the coast of Asia, both sides. Mm. Okay, that's a, a long and narrow supply chain, right? Mm. And our liquid fuel reserves are in the order of 12 days. Mm, okay. 12 days yeah, or diesel. Yeah. 12 days. Now, just think about this. So that bowl of cereal you got this morning, just imagine that the supermarket couldn't stock its shelves. Mm. And so I've got, I've got some numbers that uh, you can get on the NRMA website, by the way, and you can see what uh, w how we would fare. These are the day's supplies we have in stock right now. Chilled frozen foods, mm -hmm. seven days. Mm -hmm. Dry goods, nine days. Retail pharmaceuticals, seven days petrol stations like in the reserves at the petrol pump three days three days right so if we cut off our oil supply our fuel supply guess where we would be mm. and there are three meals between civilization and anarchy mm. yep and many people don't understand the implications of peak oil and these things that john blackburn is talking about they just think oh well if if the oil runs out if we can't get petrol I'll just have to sit at home that day and, um, you know, play my Game Boy or whatever. But it's it's a lot more than that. It's about... Uh, he mentioned, I think, that his brother-in-law is a farmer who um, actually... Th there was some sort of dis supply disruption in Victoria. Yep. And the, the, the brother-in-law, who's a farmer, actually couldn't harvest crops from his field because there wasn't the 
there wasn't physically any uh, petrol there to power his tractor to to harvest the crops. Yeah, I'm, I, you, you probably can't hear it, but I'm speechless. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and so the mandated fuel reserves for Australia, zero days, zero. We have no law. Every, every other country in the world has a law of what minimum reserves we should have. We, yep. If there is some sort of global supply disruption, we would essentially be relying on other countries to dip into their emergency reserves and kindly give us some of their emergency so reserves. So how is this possible that Australia has, <sighs> has well, come to the point of not at least recognising the standard and... I, I wish I, I had an answer. $60 million question? Um, I've got an answer. It, it is that we are run by a, 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 a mentality of government which is very much leave it to the market and you are more of a man if you leave it to the market and... Oh, foresight and planning ahead that is for wimps we are just going to leave it to these friendly companies who have our best interests at heart yes and and the economics of efficiency are the other thing so there's efficiency versus resilience mm-hmm. resilience is about having multiple options about having reserve a bit of fat and there's a manufacturing system that's used in japan and probably all over the world called kanban and it's a just-in-time delivery so just in time supply chain so look at what happened with the kobe earthquake right a major manufacturing district in japan and they had an earthquake and all of a sudden the supply was gone Mm -hmm. and even though the factory was operational had people there to work it Mm. they ground to a halt because the old things upstream there was no there was no fat anywhere in the system well just in time is great as long as everything is working perfectly but as you say it is a trade-off between efficiency which is keeping it down to the lean number of uh, minimal um, parts in the system and and stocks in a in a shelf it's a it's a balance between that and resilience which is making sure that there are multiple redundancies so that if you can't get oil in through this shipping lane through Western Australia, then you can get it in through this other shipping lane through Northern Australia. That's right, yes, and, and he, I think he even talked about uh, if you couldn't, you could ship it to Perth port, Fremantle port, but how would you get it across the Nullarbor uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, and another staggering thing that he told us was that there isn't even mandatory reporting, there isn't even mandatory <laughs> government reporting. So in order to arrive at the sort of numbers that he was quoting, it's it's derived it's it's largely guesswork you know mm. because the government does not even know what our mm. current fuel reserves are oh, I'm, I'm just absolutely staggered. yeah I, I was just about to use the word stat what's staggering is if it the current government um purports to being conservative then surely conting- contingency is is high on its uh you know list of priorities and if there is no contingency i don't really see um the the genuineness of a, of a conservative government because conservative is to to plan ahead mm-hmm. yeah well you're on the side of caution <laughs> yeah if you wanted to bring a country to its knees very fast what would you do the first thing you do is you attack the fuel supplies that's the very first thing you do because you want to stop a country that would do it mm-hmm. well we were on a bit of a rant here and uh, thank you for your time here on fuzzy logic we're winding up now our guest today has been Stuart McMillan and I really do recommend you go check out his comics because they're a good read apart from, not just uh, because you'll be better informed mm. uh, peak oil comic Dot com and he's got a bunch of others there on the backlist catalogue. Type 3, I'm looking at them on my desk. War on Drugs, that looks interesting. 
Rat Park. And I've got a top 10 list. If you go to my website, peakoilcomic.com, up the top it says top 10, and you can see what my top 10 favourite comics are and sort of read them in that order. Uh, It's been fantastic to have you on the show today. Thank you, uh, Stuart. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Becca. And Becca, make sure you check out today's Ask Fuzzy in the Canberra Times because it's about why we have a flu season. And next week I've got to write it yet and because my computer died. Uh, why are reclining bicycles less stable? <laughs> a bit of bicycle dynamics there. Good on you. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Catch you later.